Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. success so i'm going to turn off i'm going to turn off the starting soon let's make this an official thing boom all right for real for real for real like i said we've got spectra that's all that's all we need how are you sal i'm doing good about you guys you look fantastic thanks is there a uh of, of course people listening to a recording won't be able to enjoy the the majesty and the grandeur what what is the costume? Just me. <laughs> Would you say this is your inner self? This is your, your basically. Most... Yeah. Ah, you know, every yeah. time I do makeup looks, I just bring out what I like in myself. Is it different every time? Or is there a theme that you usually go with? There's usually skulls involved. Yeah. Um, yeah there's usually skulls and devils involved. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's always a, a change. Um, sometimes if I have new, new makeup to play with, I'll mess with that and do some themes around that. So if I have something that's really iridescent or holographic, I'll, I'll do some looks around that or create, um, makeups within makeup. So for example, um, I might do a skull, but when in the, in certain lighting conditions, you might see a pumpkin face, that kind of thing. Yeah. Consider just having a, a dark cloak sitting in the empty chair. Actually, there's Uh, one hanging right off my chair. Uh, it's yeah so it's like your own you are your own best monster i am aren't we all though Ab- yeah absolutely but today we're talking about you don't try and change the subject <laughs> who, who who are who are who are you sal tell us a who little am bit. i uh what do you want to know well like t- where, tell where us a little bit where i'm going yeah, tell us a little bit about your background, you know, like where are you from and how did you get into art and all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, uh, I'm born and raised in Chicago. I've been living in Minneapolis now since 2003, um, but I still go back to Chicago because that's where my parents are. Um, but uh, yeah, beyond that, as far as where I started, I mean, I was that kid that liked the, uh, the Godzilla movies and the King Kong movies growing up and all the monster movies and um and i think all of that just stayed in there um however i had some pretty like a lot of people who watch my streams if any of you guys are watching um one of the, one of the things you you often hear me talk about is that existential popcorn moment that i had when i was about four or five years old and ever since then i became obsessed with what is consciousness what is mind what is it to like be essentially pretty big shit for a four or five year old kid to be thinking about yeah we're gonna Um, need to know more about that but in a second yeah i can tell you that story yeah no problem um 
but uh, yeah, ever since then, I got obsessed with that. And, you know, in sci-fi and in horror, those are very reoccurring themes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the name, the dark cloak, you know, that, that kind of organically became a thing when I was a teenager. Cause I always wore trench coats and shit like that. And um, eventually people were like, Oh, here comes the cloak. Here comes the cloak, you know, shit like that. People would say the shadow, you know, that kind of, those kind of jokes. And so I started putting my artwork online and I didn't want to just use my real name, right? Because this is in the days where you didn't just put your real name out on the internet because of all that stuff. And right. um, I was asking my friend, I was like, man, I want to put my artwork online. There's uh, Epilogue is where I started. I don't know if you've ever heard of Epilogue.net. No. Um, Stephanie Law, uh, Jeremy McHugh, a lot of those guys started on on, on Epilogue. Um, but that's where I first started posting my artwork and I didn't know what to do. And it's like, well, why don't you just like put the nickname in there? I was like, sometimes it's like, oh, here comes that dark cloak or dark cloak or the dark cloak. And I was like, all right, cool. I'll put the dark cloak. And it just stuck. And I've been working it ever since. It's been been about 20 years I've been working that name. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, that is my name. Um, okay. So that's kind of where organically it started. But, uh, you know, a lot of the themes that have been running throughout my life, like the themes of what is underneath, what is beyond, what is below, uh, what is below the surface of people, even, which is where a lot of my psych- my uh, interest in psychology and philosophy and, and even politics, I guess, uh, come into play. Motivations, uh, hidden motivations, those motivations that you have that you don't even realize you have. For example, mm-hmm. an easy one that most people can grasp is the motivation of self-sabotage mm-hmm. out of fear. That's a hidden motivation that people carry around, and then they get the results that they get, which we're all familiar with, what, what that could be like. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of like where that whole moniker and like the persona, well, it is really me. It's not just a persona, but that's where all of that kind of flows through. Um, and in my artwork, there's often the theme of monsters fighting monsters. And a lot of that resonates very deeply with me as well as a person, because growing up, I often felt like a monster for various reasons, uh, reasons that I've only started understanding even in the, like, the last few years as an adult, as I'm understanding racism and understanding the social mm. dynamics and things like that. Like, oh, shit, like that feeling of being an outsider, that feeling of being something that doesn't belong or something that isn't wanted, um, feeling those things, you know, wrapped into my, my psyche and my personality, but also... You know, much like in, like anybody who's a monster kid usually is rooting for the monsters. And there's always like a little bit of tragedy involved with the monsters like Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula, even more recent monsters. Um, Godzilla, of course. Um, and yeah, so I think all of that expression has just kind of culminated. So everything that I've been picking up along the way, including artists that influence me, makeup people, movies, uh, games and so on, have basically funneled down to who I am today. Um, and then the last five, six years, I've, I've very intentionally and very specifically harnessed the education of retracing those roots. Um, what was selling to when he was four? What was selling to when he was 12? What was selling mm-hmm. to when he was 20? And why? And it turns out a lot of the artists and a lot of the material that I was very obsessed with as a kid um, that ultimately creeps into my work was a lot of a lot of it was done by the same people uh paul bonner was a big one so paul bonner is actually the like when i saw paul bonner's work especially his work on mutant chronicles which is like the very cyberpunk sci-fi um barbarism kind of property i don't know if you guys have ever heard of it um they were in competition with warhammer 
when I saw Paul Bonner's stuff, it was very cyberpunk and it was very, very colorful, almost cartoonish, but it still had that like gritty realism to it. And that latched, latched onto me big time. Um, I had already seen like Boris, Boris's work, um, Frazetta's work by then. Um, and those guys, like, I love looking at their work, but it was kind of like this over there thing. Mm-hmm. How old were when you I at this time? I looked at Paul's stuff, 12. Okay. Uh, I was playing Mutant Chronicles and really like look, looking at the artwork and just obsessing with it. And but when I saw Paul Bonner's work specifically for that property, um, it looked like what I saw in my head. Oh, uh, yeah. And something happened. Something clicked and I went, wait a minute. People get paid to do this stuff. And nice. that's when I started pursuing painting. Because before that, I was like interested in comics, maybe animation. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just know that I was drawing all the time, making stuff all the time. I was that kid running around the neighborhood, you know, making movies and shit like that. That was me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, learning about uh, makeup people like Jack Pierce and or animation people like Ray Harryhausen, all of those dudes. Um, and that's when I really started getting serious about painting more so than any other artist. I think Paul Bonner is the one that like made it click. So fast forward to now, a lot of the art that I'm, that I was looking at back then, I mentioned Godzilla. I mentioned a lot of like these other movies and things and games as well. Um, turns out another big one that I didn't know I was influenced by my whole childhood was, uh, an artist by the name of Noriyoshi Orai and he, I'll put his name in the uh, chat here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please do. And then we'll include it in the show notes as well. When we awesome put that up yeah noriyoshi Orai. i think we've talked about noriyoshi's work previously joby but for those of you guys mm-hmm. who don't know um he did do some work for uh metal gear and noriyoshi's work is very textural and it's very colorful and anyone who looks at my work you'll probably see those influences in there i do love using texture i love rendering material and i do like having a lot of like saturated colors in there um I try to stay away from like lots of black, weirdly, in my in my work. Ever since I started doing that, I feel like it's it's brought out more depth in my work as well. Um, but yeah, artists like that. And then the other element that I started retracing my roots on is the real Ghostbusters cartoon. I started I, I, I started rewatching some of the um, cartoons, the real the old real Ghostbusters cartoon from the '80s, and I realized just how much the background paintings from that show were in my head. Same thing with huh. Scooby-Doo. Uh, there's an artist called uh, Walter Paraguay. I love Walter Paraguay's work, spe- specifically on Scooby-Doo. Um, and again, I just started pursuing that. Um, and then I started pursuing more of the other artists that kind of influenced them. And also tangentially, I just started doing more homework as to who was involved in what. So for example, you remember those old He-Man toys, the Masters of the Universe toys? In fact, you can oh, see fun, it yeah. on my camera there. Yeah, there's that yeah, book. yeah, yeah. It's uh, the collection of all the paintings from the He-Man uh, illustrated, you know, the the box art. It was all uh-huh. fully painted stuff. Um, so I've been retracing those roots, getting familiar with who worked on those and, and mm-hmm. kind of following their careers and what that looked like. A lot mm-hmm. of those guys worked in animation, funnily enough. Um, but yeah, that, that very distinct, you know, heavy metal 80s style, um, I love it. It's it's basically saturated in my bones, and uh, but not just '80s. A lot of my stuff is very much influenced by like retrofuturism, you know, uh, uh, like you know, atomic age sci-fi, all of that stuff. Everything pretty much from like the '30s up to the late '80s, maybe early '90s, is where I draw a lot of inspiration from. What happened is about four or five years ago, 
you know, I was doing the hustle. I was doing the freelance hustle. You, you, you're on the hamster wheel. And a lot of times when you're, when you're doing the freelance hustle, you're working for yourself, but you're not really working for yourself. You're working yeah. for whoever's paying you at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. And what I realized about that hustle and also the whole thing about like improving your portfolio, having a website, doing the, you know, the social media thing, which is a whole other conversation we can get into later. Um, you know, I was, I was looking at that. It's like, well, how is this going to be sustainable for the long term, right? Because you get work, the work comes in, you do the work, the money comes in. The money is essentially already gone because you have bills to pay. You got to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the work is gone. And most of the time, that work isn't anything yours. It's paid for. It's gone. It's Maybe you'll have uh, gallery rights and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe you'll be able to use it for T-shirts and things like that, depending on what the client agreement is. And then that's it. That's it. And then you're still on the hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking about that and I was like, all right, this isn't this isn't sustainable for the long term. I want to start investing in myself. I want to treat my time, my money, even my the work that I produce, because I also do music and everything else, as, as some of you guys know. Um, I'm like, this all has to be for something to take care of like future self. So a lot of what I'm doing now is to take care of future self so that I'm not eating cat food when I'm 65. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, like, how is the uh, difference in income from when you were doing the treadmill to you working for both now and for the future? How is that well, in your immediate? It's it's a roller coaster either which way, but to be honest, um, it's very similar. It's very similar. Um, but well, so here's what happened. So when I was having that inquiry with myself, I, I, I sat down, I was like, okay, we're going to need to have a come to Jesus talk with myself and like figure this shit out. Cause this isn't going to work. Um, and the first question that popped into my head is who are you trying to impress? All right. You're doing this portfolio, you're doing all this stuff. You're getting these different client gigs, all that stuff. Who are you trying to impress? Who's it all for? Mm-hmm. Right. Like you're thinking about 65 year old sales, one thing that's more of a logistic situation right money savings etc but like who am i trying to impress like who who am i serving with all of this who have i busted my ass for 17 years learning all this shit for right plus because i've been drawing since i was like three um and i really like had a really honest talk with myself about that and i thought and i said you know what screw all that because i'm not trying to impress any specific game company i'm, tra- I'm not trying to impress any, impress any specific film company and i was like if i'm trying to impress anybody it's going to be 12 year old me mm. the me mm-hmm. who made that decision to invest all this time and, and honestly money and everything headache etc cetera, etc cetera. risk right there's a lot of risk involved in doing this um and I was like, okay, so what does that look like serving 12-year-old me? And so that's when I that's when all of that stuff started culminating, like retracing my steps, uh, you know, retracing my education, not just like like scholastic education, but my artistic education, even as an artistic, you know, as a media consumer, playing games and movies and everything else. Um and that's when I yeah, that's when I made that decision. So here was my plan. I was going to take six months off to just work on my own stuff because I have properties that I've been writing and building since I was like 15. You know, I have this, this thing called the Zetaverse. Uh, some of you folks have heard me talk about the Zetaverse before. Um, the Zetaverse takes place, as I like to say, sometime after the future happened. 
um, which started in 2005. That's the joke, right? It's like that kind of VHS, very retro, like something you'd see at the video store kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, okay, I'm going to take six months off just to focus on that to at least build something for myself, right? And then I can maybe try to do something with that. And I revamped everything. I revamped my website. I revamped my Twitch stuff. I revamped my branding, essentially more or less to what you see now. Um, it didn't last six months. <laughs> it lasted two weeks. Oh. Uh, because what happened is my stuff started making an impact in a way that I hadn't seen before. I started getting more client calls, you know, emails. I was starting to get more inquiries. My work took off way more than it did when I was trying to do like the hustle thing. This is and a so I re- didn't get to yeah. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt you. I just I was just gonna stuff. say, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get to focus on my stuff, but thankfully, like to kind of answer your question, Moose, um, it's been a building momentum ever since then, kind of leading up to where I am now, where it still looks very similar to what it looked like before, income-wise. Like I said, it's still a roller coaster. There's still the ups and downs, just like anything else. Uh, what is it? The uh, feast and famine cycles, you know, that sort of thing. Um, except the difference is that I am building a lot of my own stuff now, as opposed to not doing that. And then, okay. you know, here's the thing too. The I've I've, no, I've met so many artists who you know, they have their career, they make it big, they, they work in the film studios, the game studios, and so on and so forth. And then they reach like 55, 60 years old, if they even last that long in the industries. And then they're fucking done. They don't want to do it anymore. They want to paint even for themselves. They're just like, yeah, I'm sick of painting. I'm sick of doing this shit. They, like, they get burned out or they get you know chewed up and spat out by whatever experiences they had along the way. Um, and that's really stuck with me as well. It's like, this is going to sound really cheesy, but one of the taglines from a movie poster that always stuck with me was this one. Everyone, well, it's all men die, yet few live. And I was like, holy shit, that is so fucking true. Because so many of is us just go through the motions. That is fucking Braveheart. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I swear on this, by the way? Oh, yeah. 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 Please, please okay. do. We encourage it. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it is Braveheart. And I saw that poster and I was like, whoa, when did Braveheart come out? 94? 93? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, you know, 14. Oh, just lost it, That'll happen sometimes. He'll, he'll be back tomorrow. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I saw that one with that poster and it just stayed. It stayed with me. And I was like, that is so true. Like, what is it actually? And, you know, given everything else I said about my obsession with like being and, and, and all that stuff, consciousness, mind, growing up, that's like, that is so true. Like, everyone dies, but one day this all ends so what do you do in the meantime you know and so many people go through their lives just waiting mm-hmm. essentially oh, yeah. Yeah, for, for that sure. time and then when their time is starting to run out they have you know midlife crisis or whatever else um because they feel it there's now, a couple- so yeah that stuff was really formative for me there's a couple of things in uh in all of what you said that i feel like would be worthwhile to linger on uh just a, a little while longer because there was one thing that that I felt pretty deeply that it really hits hard for me that I can't say that it's really been crystallized in the way that you said it because I've, I've heard it stated similarly uh, watching a lot of one fantastic week. You would hear those guys talk a lot about like, what were you into when you were a kid? 
those are the things that like really inform you the most, whether you're paying attention to them or not, or how much you do indulge those resources and, and, and reference points. They're hitting you and so they're knocking on the door one way or the other. Right. But the way that you put it that I think puts in a particular um, bite to it, but not in a bad way, you know, is okay. uh, impress 12 year old me. Mm-hmm. Like not, not even as much as like, well, what, let's analyze what, what were we into when we were 12 years old but actually make the active effort to be somebody that that kid would think was really fucking cool. That yeah, really... the way I actually said it was do something that'll make 12-year-old me shit his pants is really the, <laughs> what, what happened. That's the way I put it. But if it became impressing 12-year-old me, like yeah, shorthand version. Right. No, that, yeah. I, I, that I feel like a, a deep emotional resonance with that because that happened just speaking personally that happens to be a big Mm. part of like where i'm at now is coming kind of it seems maybe like going through a lot of the process that you have recently gone through of and analyzing a lot of those those kinds of things but then also mixing them into a lot of like where i'm at now with like being a father and raising a child Mm. myself now and like this weird harmony that's happening between old childhood inside you know, like the, the kid inside me and then the kid that I see growing up from me anyway, anyway, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other, the other thing that you said too, um, that we get a, a lot of, um, here, we, I hear repeated. I know Moose has too, that, uh, when you start doing your own personal work, you actually find that people start taking, that's when, uh, Artists that have gone through that process have often found that's where they really start getting the most interest and start finding more of the type of work that they want to do with like clients and and like getting hired and contract work and stuff is when they are really spending the time putting out like all of their like most like personal work or or whatever. And it it seems counterintuitive that like, well, if I do the stuff that like is just for me, that's somehow going to equate to right a paycheck and people are like it's it certainly even for me like having heard this over and over and seeing it play out over and over it's still hard for me to like have that faith of like you gotta you gotta figure that out you gotta take the time to do it and people will like that will start showing people you know what you're really capable of and and they will want you for that i think it it resonates on the themes of authentic self-expression, which is probably one of the hardest things to achieve in life. Um, Also, knowing yourself is one of the hardest things to achieve in life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's where it comes from. It comes from this this innate honesty that starts showing through in the work. And when that starts coming through, I think the flow is more natural, I would say. Um, When I pay attention to other people, when they're hitting that zone, um, there's something special there. And I think that's the lightning in a bottle, right? Uh, one of my good friends says, uh, Christian Hernandez, I'm not sure if you know him. One of his little sayings is, art is a lot like a fart. If you force it, you're going to shit yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty good. So do you think yeah. that you, you're, you said that you went through this process of, you know, really like mining your own data, so to speak, and mm-hmm. finding out, you know, what it is that, is underneath all of those layers that's knocking on the door, like I said before. And you got really invested in 
personal work developing this world building project but then mm-hmm. that didn't care it did the momentum of it altered a little bit when you then started getting a lot of like interest from clients and stuff now do you f- right. but then you also are maintaining some forward momentum on all of these side projects and by the way we're we'll, we're going to get into like a bit of what the a lot of those projects are sure. um but do you feel like you're still on a like do you feel like you've been roped back into the treadmill or do you think that the the quote unquote treadmill is like less debilitating because you still have these outlets and these avenues where you're still in touch with like you know the true source i would say that it's it's still a treadmill right no matter what i mean life is going to be a treadmill of some form or another cuz we're getting older constantly that can't be stopped um, you know, life is going to keep on lifing. Um, I think the difference is that it becomes a tread- treadmill of your design. Um, mm-hmm. You get to say who you are on that treadmill as well. Mm-hmm. And also the treadmill ultimately has a purpose. Uh, for me, it's about building for the long game, you know, for, for future self. Like, like I was saying earlier, that's like the logistic um, hopeful outcome is, is taking care of that guy um, with as much as I can right now. And um, and to other to answer the other part of it, you mentioned about um, you know the the burden of the treadmill. Yeah, I would say it does alleviate it quite a bit because you're doing stuff you love, um, mm-hmm. and when you're having fun, you know, time flies. Um, and I think uh, kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier, Moose, um, and what I was talking about, like it building to where it is now. One of the things that's really awesome for me is that. It's starting to self-propagate. So a lot of the work that I'm getting is work that essentially I would be doing anyway, right? Like that Star Wars piece I was working on not too long ago for Monsters of Merca. Um, they had me doing an homage to the, the Hildebrandt brothers, um, that Star Wars poster from New Hope, mm-hmm. um, as a as a D&D mashup. And they're also some of my favorite artists. So me getting to basically like fully immerse into that poster yet problem solve everything i needed to problem solve for their property um was a blast and in a lot of ways it's the kind of thing i'd be doing anyway um because you know i've done like some of those frank rosetta mashups where i had uh finn and jake doing the death dealer you know the death dealer painting pose um that sort of thing so it does get easier and also i'm attracting more people that are essentially in the same boat as i am so i guess it's like one of those like attracts like even like you guys um you know people who are having the same types of conversations the same type of journey um also this whole pandemic has turned everything on its head and with all the challenges that it's brought it's also brought a lot of opportunities and uh potentials and possibilities for people like us and smaller companies um and I think one of the things that really made me pay attention when this whole thing started, uh, and this is another yet another shift that I'm making with my my work and, and my art and my life career, I guess, um, is that right now we have what most advertisers wish they had, and that is a captive audience. So many people are staying indoors. So many people are staying at home. So many people are consuming media at a rate that we've never really seen before. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and when I started, you know, kind of thinking about this, uh, I thought it's another opportunity for me to take things for myself to the next level, 
with the mentorship stuff, for example, that I do, um, because there's so many people who've lost their jobs, who suddenly now have the time to work on art or who are just stuck at home all the time. So they have time to work on art or write their stories and build their own properties um, or who are sitting there facing their shit. You know, a lot of people are having to face their personal demons right now. And, and for a lot of people, it's tough. Uh, a lot of my mentorship, you know, crosses over into that stuff as well. But uh, for me, where I'm kind of shifting into is the idea of not just being like a freelance artist or like limited to that bucket, but more of the idea of like being an entertainer. Um, you know, so that means being able to funnel in even more of my music, even more of my content, the artwork, of course, the property that I'm building, storyteller. Um, I want, pretty much at the heart of everything that I do, this is another thing that I figured out really early on in life. At the heart of everything that I do, it's all storytelling. The makeup is a story. Doesn't matter if you're sculpting something, doesn't matter if you're creating a concept, doesn't matter if you're creating a technical diagram for an industrial machine, there is a story being told in that process. And that's essentially what I've what I've kind of boiled everything down to, that it's all stories and experiences that we're creating, regardless of the medium uh, and regardless of the vehicle that we're telling those stories and creating those experiences in. Mm-hmm. And that's where I operate. One of the things that kind of retracing back to, you know, teenage me, younger me, um, a book that had a tremendous experience on, uh, impact on me. Um, it was a random find at a dollar store, like a dollar a day at a strip mall. Uh, it was the making of Terminator 2 book. In fact, it's, it's back there. Uh, I could probably pull it out if you guys wanted me to. <laughs> but um, the making of Terminator 2, and it covered everything about the movie. It covered storyboards. It's, and it was remarkably thin considering you know how meaty Terminator 2 is. But it covered everything. It covered prosthetics, makeup, um, the fact that they were building miniatures for uh, a lot of the chase stuff or like the, the, the nuclear holocaust scene. A lot of that was all miniatures, um, all the puppetry involved. Uh, all the design work, the concept art, map painting, like all of these disciplines, and never mind the CG and everything else too, um, that would that came together to craft that film. And it's one of the best films ever made, right? Terminator 2, like anyone who sees it's like, holy shit, there's a lot going on in this film. Um, and that, again, like, look, oh, so that's another that's when I was able to put a name on the guy who created the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park and the Terminator and the Predator and like all of these creatures that had been favorites of mine that I obsessed over learning how to draw and, and like memorizing and all that stuff. Stan Winston and his studio and all the people that worked for him. And now fast forward to now I know so much more about the way that system works, who the people were that actually worked on those things and, and, and that whole um, dynamic that goes into play there. But um uh, yeah, all of that was an education. All that, again, further just kept reiterating that it's all stories and experiences and that all of these disciplines can be used. You don't just have to be one thing, which is, you know, the other part of what I, of who I am and what I do is I don't consider myself just one thing. I consider myself a multidisciplinary uh, artist um, because for me, ultimately, it's that's at the heart of it is storytelling and creating experiences. That's something that I wanted to dig into a bit with you is this idea of, you know, a jack of all trades. You refer to yourself as as a polymath and um, multidisciplinary. And this is another thing that is close to my heart because it's something that I that causes me some distress. This idea that I have things 
pulling me in many different directions, not to the degree maybe that you do where like, you know, I don't really dabble in, in music per se, or, you know, performance or anything. It's, it's strictly more like visual, but the projects within that sphere, I feel like I want, there's this and there's that thing. And they don't necessarily have the same story running between them. And it's agonizing for me to try and decide what is the thing that I should be focusing on? What, what is, what's most telling my story? You know, they always like talk about like, Mm -hmm. tell your story, you know, and people like, will like respond to your story or whatever. And I'm like, well, but uh, yeah, but then I'm like, well, what is that? I, cause like, there's all these fucking things that I want. Like you see it on my Patreon where I'm like, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing, and I'm actually thinking of like re redoing my Patreon (laughs) the introduction specifically the introduction part to be like um i'm doing everything i'm doing i'm doing like it, <laughs> i so help help support support me and help me do all of it because it's like i can't i can't tell you that this is the thing that i'm doing because next week it's going to be something different that's not to say that one thing gets abandoned but right i i i, I can't just be this thing and what i'm hearing from you is that like that's like encouraging me in this regard is that like that, that like the Jack of all trades, the polymath, the multidisciplinary mm-hmm. outlets that, that can be the story like that, that is, that can be just like who you are, just own it and embrace it and, and promote that as your, dare I say branding, you know, that that's just, that that's the thing. As here's my as advice. People there. that want it. Yeah. Well, moves? here's the thing. My advice there to to answer both of you, both of what you guys both said, um, find your anchor. Figure out what the anchor is. Why all of those things attract you, and what is what is it that you want to do in all of those things, and what's the common line between all of them? There's got to be a common thread between all of them. Um, it might just be you. Maybe you're the common thread, but it could be a theme. You know, for me, it, it's very much. Uh, I would say psychological horror, I think, is probably the common thread between all of it. But the anchor at the heart of it for me is is storytelling and experiences. It's like, I like doing that. Man, this is that's that makes <laughs> see, I, this is good advice. I, I'm not arguing with you. It's just like yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm speaking strictly for myself. Sure. That that's like it's when I hear pieces of advice like that where I feel some pain because then it's like. And I, and I don't want this whole thing to become like a, a <laughs> an emotional support group for me. Um, but I, I hope that maybe it can help some other people too, just by me mm-hmm. talking some of this out. Yeah. You know, when you say like find the anchor or whatever. So then I think about like one project I have where, you know, it's a series of paintings that I want to do that are an investigation into, you know, fatherhood, childhood, mm. you know, like a lot of that kind of resonance points that I was, we were talking about like before. And then, like, I have this other idea for um, reinterpreting Star Trek as if it were medieval spacefaring vehicles, you know. <laughs> so, cool. like, so, like, where? And then, and then, you know, and I'm like, yes, this is good advice. Find the anchor. But this what's is me the putting anchor? On my consultation hat and going, why not both? No, yeah, Tell no. The to- story of a father and son in that. Oh study. shit! You just fucked me up, dude. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> I'm going to have to take your, uh, we'll have to have a jam. We can have a jam session sometime. I feel like I should, I I owe you like purchasing one of your mentorship tiers in Patreon as well. So, um, (laughs) 
but we're gonna we're gonna talk more about that as well um mm-hmm. uh, but you you stream on twitch and every time i uh go to your twitch stream it seems like you're working on something different again you know all these like yeah. very disciplines that you're in one of the more uh, in- uh there's many interesting things about your stream but it's one of the exciting things about going there is like Mm, what's <laughs> what's the dark cloak up to today right uh you also right. always have like lots of people you know like whether you're co-streaming or you have them in your discord just you know being on voice chat there's always interesting conversation um it can also get like you know really silly and lightheaded you know it's it's oh yeah it's a really great place to be so like just a, a shout out to that everybody should go check Thanks that out so much um so how do you keep from this is another thing that I struggle with others too how do you keep from going crazy from keeping it all balanced you have all of these things going finding the time you know what I mean uh time management and making sure that you give over enough time to make sure everything is sort of like progressing at a reasonable that momentum that is the tricky question isn't ah, it um yes. <laughs> stumped you finally so that is the tricky question so this is still like a work in progress that I'm learning, but one, um, hey, Ian, Ian knows this. I've been working on practicing learning how to ask for help. That includes on my creative projects, uh, as well as learning how to delegate. Mm. That includes also my creative projects. Um, so that's starting to ramp up and that's starting to build up. But for my own self-management and, and around that, um, what I'm what I'm realizing is small size bites, right? Or, or bite size uh, milestones. So like the initial thing, what can you do in half an hour? What can you do in one hour? What can you do? You know what I mean? Can you set a, a day aside just for the one thing that you want to you wanna move forward? Um, but small steps, break everything down into the smallest steps. And it kind of ties into one of the other, um, I guess, philosophies that I've, I've been carrying for a while now, for a few years, ever since I first heard it, is the be 1% better everyday philosophy. Um, mm. And, you know, it's a very abstract thing. It doesn't, it's pretty absurd when you really think about it. There is no way to quantify being 1% better, t- you know, than tomorrow, right? But as an idea, as like a baseline or, or as like um, something to fall back onto, 1% better can mean anything. It can mean... Today, to be 1% better, you're going to organize your closet. You're going to organize your art files. You're going to organize your brushes. You're going to, you know what I mean? Like anything that helps do the housekeeping in your headspace. Um, because obviously our headspace affects our creative space. Uh, if it means clean up your studio space. And if that's what it means to be 1% better, then that's what you do. It's, it's you know how they say professionals show up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not just about being there. It's about actually showing up. It means mm-hmm. bringing it, right? Yeah. Like when I've worked in theater, when I've worked in film, when you show up, you don't just, you're being physically there is not enough. You got to be there, present, um, to be able to adapt and maneuver around what's needed from you, uh, to answer people's questions, to handle breakdowns when they happen, because they will fucking happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same way. It's, it's find all those little 1% ways that you can help yourself show up and be in that zone so for example you know there's going to be times you're going to sit down to do art because you have deadlines and you're not going to want to 
that's been happening to me a lot this year with this everything that's going on this pandemic and everything this undercurrent of the world's on fire and you know you guys have <laughs> all seen that meme anybody want to buy some art you know that whole right thing. yeah um you know that that undercurrent's there but it's like just whatever little bits you can do to help yourself um that might be the one percent but anyway all that aside pedantry aside if we subscribe to the idea that you can be 1% better every day, right? Mm -hmm. In 300 days, you're three times better than when you started as a surreal abstract idea. Now, let's say you fall off the wagon a couple of days here and there, you know, and maybe over the course of 300 days, maybe you've kind of slacked off a total of like 30 days here and there, right? Like cumulatively, you're still 270 days better or percent better than you were when you started. Like if you look at it that way as an abstract thing. So when you slip up and you have a day of just like slacking off and just whatever, sitting on the couch and playing video games, most people fall into the habit of beating themselves up or feeling guilty while they're doing those things. Sitting there playing a game and feeling guilty about it. Sitting there watching a movie and feeling guilty about it. And then you don't end up enjoying what the fuck you're doing. So why even bother doing it at all, right? It's like you're on a diet and you're eating something you shouldn't be. You know, um, you don't even enjoy what you're eating, mm -hmm. right? You feel like shit afterwards. You, you, you're sitting there like you're getting away with murder while eating a fucking slice of pizza. It's like, no, man, like manage that shit. Have, have a cheat day. Do whatever you need to do. Just don't let the long term get, you know, thrown off course for the one slip up that you had. And it's the same thing with the 1% mentality. You know, if, if you have an off day here and there, it doesn't matter. It's just 1% that you didn't gain. There's still right. more percentages to gain. Um, what you and it's, said, you know, uh, it's about the long game. Yeah. What you just said uh, reminds me of a friend of ours, Art of Blake. Oh, he Blake. Can't, he can't even do personal work because he feels guilty when he has uh, client work that he needs to do. And he has like, you know, four months of client work, client work worked up, uh, lined up, but he still can't work on his original IP because yeah. he feels like it's disrespectful or, you know, uh, a poor use of his time. I suffer right. from I suffer from the exact same thing. So what? So Sal, what's your uh, what's your advice to people like in Blake and my position? And and Take maybe my mentorship course. <laughs> okay, maybe maybe that'll be part of that's it. That's the easy answer. Um, well, that's the short answer. Um, honestly, like the the quick answer to that is build a better relationship with yourself. Um, for me. Um, you know, things like imposter syndrome, guilt, uh, comparison, all of these things have fallen to the wayside a long time ago. Um, when I realized the way that I was behaving towards myself, towards my work, towards my art, uh, and how I was doing were the things that I would not tolerate from anybody else. Like very simply. So, um, the, oh, so go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. What are you going to ask? Well, I was going to ask for like, I, I love the head game stuff. I'm definitely not trying to say like hand wave that away. Right. But do you, but do you, do you have thoughts on practical uh, implementation, you know, as far as like scheduling or, you know, like what's like, what's an actual, um, uh, a, a task, a physical task, like a, the, the, the head game definitely being part of this, what are mm -hmm. things that people can do that can they, they, they can start doing like tomorrow uh, to, you know, 
man, either whether it's time management or like you said, delegation or whatever, like what are some practical behaviors that people can start doing immediately that will kind of scheduling for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, but the, the, the thing with answering a question like that is that there isn't a one size fits all solution to these issues because right. everyone's different. Everyone responds to things differently. Some people don't respond very well to structure. There's some things about myself that I don't respond well to like having a scheduled structure for. Um, and with the experience that I've had with myself, essentially, I've learned how to outsmart myself, <laughs> uh, to know what things I should schedule rigidly and what things I should just kind of leave lax. And that mm -hmm. works for me. Um, but if I were to tell somebody else to do the same thing, I, it could fail spectacularly. Uh, my good friend, Jessica Fong turned me on to this talk. I think it was a GDC talk. It was about game development, but it was pretty universally, um, uh, adequate. It was uh, talking about how all all advice is bad advice <laughs> because there's always so many variables out there at play. Mm -hmm. Not never mind like the internal variables of like what a person's head game is like or imposter syndrome or all of these things, but also the external factors, right? Like I don't know pandemics and riots and all of these other things. Um, you know, uh, there's always going to be something new to adapt to. Um, or even just uh, other logistic issues like health issues. You know, friends. I have friends who, you know, they want to be professional artists and everything else, but um, they have chronic health issues that basically debilitate them quite a bit, and they really only have maybe one or two hours a day to do art. Mm -hmm. You know, and so comparing myself to them is shitty. It's it's just not fair because I need to recognize that they are where they are at. So it, it's more about each individual having the awareness to be adaptable to do what is required for their specific set of variables, right? So like, you know, they talk about the, the hand that you've been dealt. Everyone's been dealt a very different hand. Saying, hey, check out that ace or hey, check out that five, you don't need it, isn't going to help everybody at the table. Um, but yes, schedule management is good. Managing your head game is good. Um, like I said earlier, setting up you know small attainable goals maybe that you can set you can achieve one goal a week that's even a small one like a character sketch or something like that mm -hmm. you know start there and as you build that momentum and you build that familiarity with your own self and your own systems um you can then manage yourself more uh effectively you said a couple of things that that make me think of common themes that we could maybe find amongst people, you know, where you're saying like all advice is bad advice and each individual situation is going to be too unique to give specific advice. Right. But a couple of things that, that, that you mentioned make me think of some baseline common denominators. You, you mentioned something about tricking yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I can't remember exactly how you put it, but something to the effect of, you know, kind of like yourself. Uh, outsmarting yourself, and kind of like identifying, you know, like where um, the sticky points are, and mm -hmm. so so in that, like I think of I think of something that I heard uh, a long time ago in reference to something that that wasn't particularly art related. Uh, permaculture uh, is a is a word that people could look up and look into. There's a lot of valuable insights in there, and one of them was like the problem is the solution. And mm. 
So just using Blake as an example, I hope he doesn't mind. You know, he has he has a he has some guilt about um, setting us like deprioritizing client work for the sake of personal work. So I wonder if there is like a, a head game in there that Blake could play with himself. I could use myself as an example in this situation too, where you make yourself your own client. You know, like you treat yourself right. as, Oh yeah. Yeah. As like you, mm-hmm. you, 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 that you owe yourself time as well. And so then you schedule time for this particular thing and you like try your damned hardest to treat that in the same way that you would any other client work. Like if I don't do that, yep. there's a client that I'm letting down. They're never going to hire me. They're going to stop coming back and I'm going to miss out on all of these other opportunities that could have stemmed from it. Like if you're going to give yourself, yeah, if you're going to give yourself a guilt trip, give it, give yourself a guilt trip about letting down your, your inside client. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Make no, the counterproductivity the work about, for you. When I, when I say about always be a, this is something people on my streams have probably heard me say before, but it's like, always be a professional, right? Mm-hmm. Even to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing about showing up, show up for you too, right? Because if you don't advocate for your own stuff, your own characters, your own stories, your own dreams, all of this shit, who the fuck will, right? right? And mm-hmm. if you're not advocating for your own stuff, right? Putting your own stories out there, your own messages, or even just like the things that inspire you, be the change you want to see in the world, you know, that whole thing. If you're not doing that for yourself, even if somebody else comes along and says, hey, Joby, hey, Blake, hey, you know, I believe in your stuff. Hey, Sal, I believe in your shit. You should be doing your stuff and draw your characters and I want to see more. If you're not fucking doing that for yourself, it's going to be a headache. You're going to struggle. It's going to, it's going to be more, even more work because guilt and all of that stuff i mean that's work that's a that's an expensive energy are you invoicing somebody for your guilt probably not (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) i wish i could invoice people for for that stuff but yeah if you're not invoicing somebody for it don't fucking do it oh um wow i'd sorry to interrupt you but speak of the devil yeah blake just showed up in chat it's like we summoned him fucking awesome hey blake we've been talking about you buddy (laughs) in the best way possible but sorry, I didn't mean to derail you. No, 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 no derail at all. Um, yeah, but it's it's that it's it's you have to learn how to advocate for yourself, and you have to learn how to be a professional for yourself, and always being a professional, always showing up, um, always sticking up for your work, um, always sticking up for yourself, just like you're saying, like like you're your own client, and that's hard. That's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as how to go about that, it looks different for other people. So I'll kind of talk a little bit about the mentorship stuff. And I, I know you want to talk a little bit more about that too anyway. So we kind of I, this might be a good segue for that. So just to kind of give you an example, um, for the first few sessions of my mentorship, I have some like pre-made modules that I've basically created and written out uh, for people to, that establish like the foundational um, elements and pillars, I guess of 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 what goes forward from there and everyone's different what i've realized is that everyone's different so for example some people some people really crave like freedom and spontaneity and like you know not being locked down by anything in order to be productive 
And some people are completely opposite. Some people, what they've been like, they've had too much of that chaos. What they want is a more militaristic, like structure, uh, order, like everything's very boom, 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 boom. And that's what works for them to be productive. But it's like, Figuring out the programming, figuring out the script that's running the show, what's driving the bus for each person as well, because that's different as well. Kind of like what we talked about earlier about hidden motivations, right? Or mm-hmm. covert contracts, I think they're sometimes called, um, you know, where someone's, uh, for example, someone's covert contractor or hidden motivation might be um, fear of success. It's really easy to say you're afraid of failing, but fear of success is far more insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like that. So throughout the course of what I do, through conversation and, and through a lot of what I do is working through metaphor and story and, you know, um, the way I talk about it when, when I'm sitting with people in my, in my, my, in my sessions with my clients is, you know, when, when we're in a session, I'm no longer here. Sal is gone. All that's here is just his guide. You got your abyss and we're going to dive in and we're going to see what we find. And my job is to figure out where the bad smells are coming from <laughs> because the, the philosophy that I that I kind of built this from was the idea that, um, you know, the, the longer you stand knee deep in bullshit, the more you will get used to the smell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's worse. Not only do you get used to the smell, eventually you defend your pile of bullshit. Eventually you're like, well, my pile of bullshit's the best bullshit. You don't know me, blah, blah, blah. You know what I've been through, right? And that pile of bullshit's warm and it's comfortable and it's known, right? It's known. It's a known quantity. Stepping out of that pile of bullshit and walking somewhere else is scary because people people ultimately fear the unknown. Again, there's that whole dark cloak thing about what's underneath, what's beyond, what's in the abyss, what's in the void. That's where a lot of these themes that I'm about come from is it's what's behind that, what is behind yourself or what you think is yourself. Is that really you, or is that a third grade teacher that told you one day that your art sucks? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and and it's, know, it's hard to disentangle those things, too. So I think that's a, um, a lost train of thought. Um, keep it, you know, something to keep in mind just as like, a way to start seeing your way into it is like there's there could be one little thread that leads to another leads to another but it shouldn't be taken on as this process necessarily of like you're going to wake up tomorrow and okay now i've identified all of the things that are as you say you know in my pile of of bullshit you gotta right you gotta kind of take it slow um i i do i want to i i think that we will come back to more of the the philosophical and yeah, things sure. and 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 your mentorship and how you approach that. Just one really oh yeah, quick yeah. go ahead there go ahead about what you just said. Um, like the final little nugget on top of that is <laughs> the, the cherry is the on idea top. that everything is the cherry on top of the pile of bullshit yeah. is the idea that everything is practice. Um, we often right, think about yeah. practice towards positive things. Mm-hmm. We practice riding a bike. We practice art. We practice driving a car. We don't really think about how we practice shitty things. Like mm-hmm. we practice being angry. We practice sitting around being upset. We practice feeling sorry for ourselves. We practice comparing our artwork to other people's. Uh, we practice feeling guilty about doing the things that we want to do instead of doing the other thing that we should be doing and all that stuff. It's practice. Everything is practice. So once you start realizing that everything is practice and, and a habit building um, and taking, removing like the judgment from it, just realizing it like as a, as like a programmatic, uh, 
logistic, right? You're like writing a script in like code, you're writing code out. And the, the more that code runs in your system, the more efficiently it's going to run. Well, mm -hmm. if you've had a lot of practice feeling guilty about shit, that's going to be a really well-practiced script and it's going to be in your page file, always accessible no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's, how I, that's how I look at it. For me, like kind of just really quick self-disclose here, um, the thing that I realized uh, you know, quite a few years ago was that I was an expert black belt level master, you know, high tier, tier 10 level crit criticizer and complainer. I complained mm -hmm. a lot. Give me any fucking thing and put it in front of me. I will find a way to nitpick it to death and complain about it and tell you why it's shit. And when I realized it about my, that about myself, I'm like looking at it as, as kind of like a D&D &D game. I'm like, man, I've invested a lot of experience points in this tier. That's <laughs> something that I really want, and I can't respect it, right? I can't uh -huh. make a new character. Like, I, like you're saying, I can't get up tomorrow, and now that I know that, I can just stop doing that. It's not going to happen. So how do I flip it? Well, maybe I can just deviate those points into a different branch called constructive criticism and critical thinking, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you, that, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about outsmarting yourself but also kind of gaming your own system that you've programmed for yourself yeah i had a um, similar situation where uh i would always find problems with things but uh, i found it was a whole lot more useful to after you find a problem you find the solution to that problem mm. yeah. right yeah yeah totally it's be uh proactive about it um but i love the tech tree analogy you know of like where you put your skill points you know like yeah and, yeah, Warcraft and a whole bunch of other games, you know, have tech trees of like you get your little skill point when you reach a, a certain level, you know, and it's like, where are you going to put it? And based on what we've been practicing, our uh, our skill points will start getting put without even necessarily being consciously aware of it. You know, we're putting a lot, like you just said, we're putting a lot of skill points in the in the uh, in some of the more self defeating ends of our of our of our tech tree. One one thing that I've come to start thinking about it as is friends, um, mm. the you know, or people that you know, maybe not friends, uh, people that you know, uh, and all of these like internal voices and internal habits and practices are people that you know. So there's sides of yourself that you're that that is that are friendly to you, you know, that are like healthy for you to hang out with. They're encouraging, you know, they're mm. supportive and nurturing and all that kind of stuff. And then there's sides of yourself that are real counterproductive you know real toxic real like not good people to be hanging out with right but maybe you have something just like there might be people in your life that are counterproductive but it's like hard to disentangle yourself from them or whatever those things that are inside you can be very much the same way even worse even like more seductive and powerful because they're inside you they are you and you've spent so much time getting used to and hanging out with these people that say shitty, terrible things about you to your to your face, yeah. abusive things to your face. And you're just like, and well, you believe them because they sound them. like you and they right. wear your face. But it is it is possible. And I don't think this is theoretical. I don't want to make like too hard and firm a statement. But I think that it's possible just as simply as like once a day have a little chat with the friendly side of, your, of yourself and just role play it. Hey, like be as 
weird about it is you want to be like speaking out loud to yourself like hey how's it going you know okay good to see you and then immediately like the shitty part of yourself is going to come in and be like what are you doing you're talking to yourself who are you fucking talking to you asshole like what's wrong with you (laughs) and and then you like then you're like okay well at least i said hi to them and then maybe they'll stay a little bit longer the next day this Um, is the uh saturday life thing right the uh because i'm good enough i'm smart enough (laughs) doggone it people like me well, and, and that's, and that's kind of the thing that I think proves my suspicion is that hmm. like we immediately want to start mocking that, you know, like when yeah. we think about that, when we think about making friends or like be like trying to hang out with the more friendly side of ourselves, that's like what we think of like all of the cliches and skits that we've seen that have kind of mocked that, you know, it's almost like a cultural thing that we have where it's like, don't take that seriously. You know, that that's, mm. that's silly. That's silliness. You're, you're what's yeah. yeah. And a lot of that is just, um, and you've heard me talk about this before, but you know, a lot of it's internalization as well as projection of a very judgmental society that we, uh, crab mentality is a topic that I often bring up in, in streams when these types of things come up. Mm-hmm. Um, you, are you familiar with crab mentality, crabs in a bucket, that phenomena for anyone listening or watching? Um, crabs in a bucket or crab mindedness comes from the phenomenon when you have a bunch of crabs in a bucket that as they're climbing out, the other ones that are also trying to climb out, pull them oh. down in their own effort to climb out. Right. And then what happens is none of them get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, other ways that it can be played out or phrases that are associated with is like, if I can't have it, you can't have it either. Mm-hmm. You know? um, ways that people may have maybe experienced it in their own lifetime is like in the old neighborhood for example you know if you're like oh i'm gonna go to college and someone goes what so you think you're smarter than me that's yeah. crap mentality in action right there right you know so kind of going to what you're saying like that that knee-jerk feeling of like wow this is so stupid i'm i'm being nice to myself or i'm saying hello to myself or waving at myself in the mirror like how fucking shitty is that or whatever it's those voices you know, you're, you're basically you're you're funneling that judgment onto yourself that would normally you you'd think would be coming from the outside world. You know, yeah, um, or the or the I think about the um uh, the ladder experiment with the monkeys and the bananas, and they hang these. <laughs> they have, do you know that one? They hang the bananas from the ceiling and they put a ladder like right underneath it, and of okay. course the monkeys go up and get the bananas. But then they teach, um, I don't know, like a, a, some small handful of monkeys in the troop. To like that's not okay like if you if you go up the ladder you get punished somehow oh so then all those monkeys teach the other ones don't go up the fucking ladder like it's a bad news up there don't don't someone in the chat said do not believe his lies from the moment the the movie memento but it's like that like all these mm. monkeys are like fucking no don't do it so and then they gradually like cycle one monkey out for another until the original troop is totally gone and it's new monkeys that have never learned like the original programming but they're all still following this methodology. Of, like, right. Right. Or the experiment the with the uh the buzzer where everybody stands up and then they sit down when it goes out again or the bell. Oh, that one I don't know. It's like a reception. Oh, it's like a reception area. It's like a dental office or something. It's like a reception area and they'll have a couple of actors just sitting there and then someone will be there for their appointment. And like they're they're all waiting, and then the bell goes off. So two people are plants, and the rest of the people that show up aren't plants. Um, and a bell goes off. Whenever, whenever the bell goes off, people stop what they're doing and they stand up. And the mm-hmm. new person 
sees it's happening and I guess they feel self-conscious, so they stand up as well. And then the bell oh, right, goes off again right. and then everyone sits down. So then what happens is as the group is growing, as new people, new uh, people who are part of the experiment show up to join for their appointment, that isn't mm-hmm. really going to happen. Like that is the appointment, them being there for this fucking experiment. Mm-hmm. Every time the bell goes off, essentially what eventually starts happening is even the new people look at the at the or what you know the the, i guess the old new people start looking at the new new people looking at them like hey you you gotta stand up and and (laughs) somebody will go well why and they'll go i don't know but everybody keeps standing up and so that'll happen that'll keep happening and it'll keep happening and next thing you know you have 10 people standing up and sitting down whenever a bell goes off and then like the experiment closes and then they explain to them what, what just happened but seeing that play out and the way people like the dynamics that play out as a result of that is really fascinating because you kind of see people getting mad when someone refuses to stand up. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, right. Like, well, that, why isn't that guy standing up? Everybody else is standing up. And then it, it just starts shifting the dynamic in the room really quickly. And it's just really funny how something as innocuous as a bell chiming and people standing up or sitting down can just change the dynamic of a room. It's bizarre. There's a real life uh, version of that at football games with the, um, not the national anthem, but they play up proud to be American for every football game. And some people stand up and other people won't. And you'll see some uh-huh. of the people that are standing up looking at the people. That, like there's no like actual contract. They say you have to stand up during the recording, but right. people get offended by it. If you Social don't. pressure right. is insane, man. And it it's occurs ridiculous. to me, like it occurs to me, you know, as I'm thinking of, um, we're telling these stories about, you know, studies and things that we've heard or read about or whatever. And I'm thinking of more like as you're talking other examples mm-hmm. of ones that I've heard about, and there's so many of them. And it, it's, it's occurring to me that it seems like there should be more like a greater effect, like for as many of these kinds of studies that have been done, like, shouldn't there be a greater effect on society at large, you know, for what we've learned, uh, I understand that. Well, the the human condition is is powerful enough to work against it. But man, like we keep getting example after example after example, and you know, like the more that it almost seems like the more we understand about how people interact with each other, the less we put into uh, uh, put into action the lessons that we learn from these things. Like, why do you why do you think that is? The reason I'm smiling is because there's this um, fantastic documentary that covers exactly what you're talking about. It's called A Century of Self. And what that documentary talks about, it talks about when uh, Freud's nephew, I can't remember the guy's name. I think Ian knows what his name is because we talked about it before too. Um, Freud's nephew uh, basically brought a lot of Freud's, (laughs) Ian, brought a lot of Freud's theory into into the world of advertising in the 20s and 30s. and basically, it's all about psychological, emotional manipulation. And we are trapped in these systems. And another thing that I would recommend people look up is sick systems. I'll write this in the chat as well. Sick systems are fucked up. Uh, a lot of times, sick systems are associated with like employers and, and like uh, personal relationships. Edward Bernays. Yeah, um, yep. Yep. And uh, But anyway, so the world of advertising used to be where it's like, you know, this is a quality product. It is, you know, handmade. It's made with durable materials. It'll last you 25 years, blah, 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 blah. It's all about like the craftsmanship and the durability and all of that stuff. That's what advertising used to be. 
yeah, they had like the catchy slogans. And yeah, there was a lot of like snake oil and all that stuff. But it was all about the way that things were sold to you, even if it wasn't true, was all about the craftsmanship mm-hmm. and about the value that you're getting for your buck. And it went to every savvy consumer knows that if you know about electronics, you're going to have this gizmo in your collection. You're going to have this on your backpack. And right. anyone who doesn't have this backpack, you know, will be judged badly. And it became about the social dynamic. Right. You know what I mean? It became about looking good. It became about playing into that part of people's emotional psychology. And so fast forward to now, watch the documentary. It's packed. I mean, it's like a four hour documentary. It's like, I can't even paraphrase all of it, but a lot of it is is talking about that is mm-hmm. how advertising and everything went from uh, being about logistics to being about feelings and then ultimately how then then that then trickled down into everything else into propaganda into the way um news bulletins are crafted uh the language that we use in these things um the war effort how that got influenced by all of this stuff uh they saw the success in the model and they're like use this everywhere (laughs) absolutely if you guys look at like the nixon era and the protests around nixon era in vietnam and everything how you know, the, 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 what, when, when somebody uses the word hippie, right, mm-hmm. what comes to mind? Asshole. Usually it's like the dirty, unwashed yeah. hippie and like, you know, the, the hemp sweater and like dreadlocks and what the fuck else ever, right? White dreadlocks. White dreadlocks, all of that shit. And that, that's all just a serious, like a cartoon essentially that was created by the Nixon administration and the people who were for the war um the dirty unwashed hippie trope came Mm -hmm. from that uh because what you had is you had a lot of like university professors you had a lot of uh suburban people like you know upper class people all of these people um who were actually the ones protesting about it but by popularizing the image of the dirty unwashed hippies and those were the people who were protesting about the war and the love and the free love and the drugs and all that stuff it it uh delegitimized the conversation that they were having mm-hmm. because saying we shouldn't send our, our people to to vietnam became unpatriotic it became something you don't do to do that means that you're against america so when you think about these types of things and these types of mo- uh, behavior models and how they play even today in this you know very enlightened year of 2020 that we live in it really starts you really start realizing some shit about how easily manipulatable we are going back to your analogy the 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 study about the ladder and the monkeys and the banana we are still stuck in that model right and it's models within models within models within models man it's models all the way down yeah there's also um an effect what is it epigenetics is that the one where like the mouse that runs the maze will have offspring that will run it a little bit faster oh yeah like the concepts of genetic memory and and yeah yeah and i'm sure that there's a bit of that at play too you know where it doesn't even this is something that i think about a lot too where it doesn't necessarily have to be like the boogeyman you know that's like orchestrating like all of this you know puppet mastery or whatever it's just like this snowball effect where what his Edward Bernays, uh, Beth mentioned in the chat was, um, uh, was that was, um, Freud's son or wait, no, I nephew, nephew, um, who like kind of made the connection between advertising 
everybody saw the success in that. Let's reuse that format for all of these other purposes. Boom. Now you have a slightly bigger snowball that's rolling down the hill and it just keeps up, keeps picking up bodies as it rolls down and rolls down and rolls down until now here we are where the, 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 the greater sociological effect is like, not only is it political propaganda, but we've now internalized a lot of these kinds of things, you know, and a lot of this, and especially when you tie in another thing that we talk a lot about is, you know, the stigma of the artist, you know, and how that's not even a respectable way to make a living. Why would you do that to yourself? You know, and your poor mo- you're breaking your mother's heart. Um, so you put that together, you know, with this, uh, you know, weird nebulous propaganda that, that you can't even like point to its singular origin. And now you have the tortured artist, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. And, well, yeah. it's worse than that. It's it's not just one snowball. It's multiple. Right. That's, you know? Yeah, that's and true. And you might have a leg in one and an arm in the other, and you're just oh. trapped in them, and you don't know that you're trapped in them. God, it's, this, it's this, this, anal- this analogy has so many, so many layers to it. I want to press pause on it, though, because I want sure. to uh, – I because I feel like we could investigate the um, the psychological and the abstract – for hours and i think that we'll you know Absolutely. we'll have you we'll have you back on uh aeon in the chat is an is another person that really loves to go down these rabbit holes i think it would be fun to have oh, i know <laughs> you and them on at the same time that'd be and, awesome yeah and just really fucking pull the ripcord um but i want to maybe close out with uh some of your projects because we've alluded to like all of the different things that you have going on and mm-hmm. you know um how much you how many plates you keep spinning there's a couple that i would like you to tell us a little bit more sure. uh, you uh recently um kickstarted a project called Invocultus. am i am i gonna pronounce right. that right yeah um <laughs> and i always read it and i love the, like the look of the word but it's one of those things where you don't say out loud and then when you do you're like <laughs> that's no you got it that's Nailed not a it. that's not a ding on your choice. That's a ding on my inability to properly enunciate. So, Invocultus, tell us about what that is. It's a really cool project. It's a tabletop um, role playing game where you play uh, deep space occult researchers who um, go into the the outskirts of known space and basically they investigate like paranormal findings, uh, eldritch ruins, things like that. Um, they're basically on on the search for um, dark knowledge, mm-hmm. to summarize it quickly. But it's a game that you can play with any poker deck. Um, it's made for two to four players. It's very um, it's very narrative driven, and I'm trying to find how many variables there are. So as you're playing, one person becomes the conduit the conduit of the void, and what that means is that the person becomes a monster. They basically end up becoming a Cronenberg, Lovecraftian, freaky monster thing. And uh, the other players then have to take out that player. Let me get the link for you guys. You guys can, I'll drop the link in the chat. Um, And the links for these things will also be in the show notes too. Cool, perfect. Um, But yeah, that that was uh, funded in February and we are currently... Play test the, the the pandemic really slowed down our play testing, unfortunately, um, as well as having to scramble and readjust. That really screwed everyone's schedules up, and people have been having to move. The California fires have been screwing up with everything as well. Um, but it's all moving along. It's still 
still happening. Um, all the monsters and all the artwork in the book are going to be hand inked uh, by me. Uh, Jessica Fong is the collaborator, other artist. Um, her and some of the people from Lonely Egg Studio, we all work together to create this game. Um, but uh, we've been playing, we've been play testing it, and there's something like twelve. It's like 12,000 some odd variables of what could happen in the game based on, on the hands that, that people win with, what cards they have at, at the end of certain rounds. Um, so what happens is in the first round, it's, ex it's your exploration round. And as you're exploring, you're basically unlocking the void and like you're, you're, you're getting the components for the ritual. And then the ritual happens. And then based on the, what plays out from that ritual, one person becomes the conduit and then based on what they had when they what components they had in hand if they if they won the ritual basically it's like a po a mini poker game um they become a monster and then depending on what monster they are that each monster there's 10 different monsters um each monster has different powers uh like different perks and abilities that they can basically have that involve the cards uh, or that they can alter the game in, in very specific ways and then the second the second half of the game is basically them building their components to banish the monster away and fight who used to be their 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 uh, cohort. Um, but the other part that happens is because the void rift was open, uh, the monster gets an additional um, enchantment, and the the survivors at this point the sur the surviving members of the team get what. Dark gifts and dark gifts again are like extra perks and bonuses that they get, abilities that they could either use together or individually as they're building their components to then defeat the monster in the big showdown at the end of the game. A game can take anywhere between like 20 to 30 minutes um, to play, so it's a really good like pub game, a uh, really good pick up and play type game. But we're also exploring having legacy systems where, depending on who won in the last game, uh, or what regions were explore, explored, you bring um, certain gameplay elements into your next round. And just basically, like, you could have a whole evening of playing the game and just, like, hanging out and, and exploring the artwork and whatnot. You mentioned uh, having trouble with the playtesting. And um, I actually have some friends that have their own Discord server where all they do is the playtesting through a tabletop simulator. That's what we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really helpful. So yeah, that... ideally, what, what we what we want to do is not have the same playtesting people every time. And in person, it goes faster because the way you handle the cards and everything is just faster. Like Tabletop Simulator, as much as I love it, it is a little bit clunky. Um, so part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that we have different groups for testing, especially as we're making changes, because inevitably, inevitably what will happen is, you know, playtest A group. Um, if they've already played the game and you make some changes and then they play it again, they're going to be comparing it to the previous iteration. So sometimes we want to go in with a fresh group uh, to see how, like, what their perception of the game is. And, like, that way their feedback is unfiltered from the previous iteration. And we, we sometimes end up bouncing back and forth or just putting, you know, whole new groups together. Um, and also because there's so many different permutations involved. Um, I want to say there's 16 enchantments, 16 gifts, 10 monsters, um, and then three different locations that you can explore that each have their own permutations on the game. I th yeah, I think ultimately it's 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 in the thousands for sure of how many different combinations you could have. Um, so that's part of what we're doing as well as we're we're making sure that there aren't any game breaking permutations that could occur, so that way when the game ships and everything, it's it's not going to mess up anything. 
there's a callback here to something that we were talking about earlier in yeah. getting getting multiple projects. Uh, well, we were talking about working on multiple projects. So, but this is a nice tie in and a way to tie up the last little threads of that because it's a it's a project that you've finished, you've completed. So, keeping in mind what we talked about earlier. Um, you know, that there is no one-size-fits-all answer to how people are going to time manage. And just as a, answering the question kind of for yourself, what did the logistics look like when you guys were working on this project and then you're balancing all of, you know, the professional work, the, you know, client work that you had? Yeah. You also have a partner that you're working with and they have client work. So that's like a, I'm really interested to hear about how you guys kind of organized and structured that to make sure you were making consistent progress and also managing to, you know, meet together, figure it all out. I mean, this is like really time consuming mm -hmm. stuff. And then you put together a it successful is. Kickstarter. So yeah, what is like, walk me through a little bit of a overview sure. of what the logistics were like for you guys there. Initially, the logistics were, we were treating it as essentially as a game jam between Lonely Egg and myself. There's actually uh, five people involved in the making of the game, oh, wow. uh, with Jessica and I spearheading the art direction, me spearheading a lot of the writing and the lore. Um, and then Andrew is uh, handling uh, the testing and the game design, like the mechanics. Um, and we also had uh, Mark handling some of like more back-end logistics, like uh, producer logistics like money and taxes and that sort of thing um and david handling uh some of the testing initial testing when we were in our early phases but initially it was supposed to be like a game jam um our timeline was going to be like two to three months we were going to take it to gdc the game developers conference to bring a prototype play it with people get feedback live um also basically do like a whole roundtable panel presentation of it and all that stuff and of course, <laughs> GDC didn't happen. Um, I was supposed to stay out there in in San Francisco with them to basically get it get it all finished and and or or at least get a lot of the nuts and bolts ironed out and the artwork and and everything um, ironed out so that when then we can just spend all of summer in the actual production doing like the layout and fleshing out and like I said doing all the variable testing. Um, but one of the things that we did is, is we, first of all, because we were treating it like a game jam, our initial scope was smaller. It's like, like it's, it was made for RPG Zine Quest, which is an event that Kickstarter has started doing. And, um, you know, the very low commitment, like low bar, um, tabletop pen and paper type RPG games, like pamphlet type games. And I don't know if you guys know, but like where the whole idea of zines come from, but in, um, like in the 60s and 70s, especially when photocopiers became more accessible to people, people started making zines. And sometimes they were fanzines, like for horror movies or music or whatever, um, to people making like essentially homebrew games for or modules and expansions for like D&D &D and whatnot. And that's where the whole thing comes from. And it has this like whole aesthetic to it that uh, really inspired what we're doing with the game. But um as far as uh, as far as that's concerned, like that's that's kind of the bar that we set for the initial. But we also we really like the idea that we came up with. We like the design. We like the the aesthetic, the monsters, all of that stuff. We love it a lot, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, and we weren't really expecting the Kickstarter to take off as hard as it did. 
Um, so as a result of the Kickstarter, we, we've, we've been able to flesh the game out even further. Uh, we have all these new systems that we want to bring back for like a, like a expansion for that game um, that we're kind of shelving based on what we're doing with this one. Um, but we're trying to, part of what helps is having accountability partners with each other um, because we all have skin in the game uh, in regards to time and in regards to our workload and everything else. Um, and then the other part of it is, you know, just constant communication, especially in these days with everything that changed because uh, they had to move, believe it or not, over the summer be between the pandemic starting and now they've had to move three times hmm. um, because of the fires and all that other stuff as well, all these logistics. Um, and, you know, I, I did my studio rebuild and all that stuff. So I've essentially moved as well over the summer during the because of this stuff, because doing all this was like basically like moving house, even though I'm still in the same house, like it was like moving house, setting oh, yeah. it all up in one place and getting all my musical equipment and everything set up because I'm looking to significantly ramp up what I do over the next uh, few weeks, months um, in regards to what content I'm putting out. Um, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier is about like setting realistic milestones, bite-sized chunks that you can actually manage, constant communication. In this case, if you're working with other people, it helps to have those accountability buddies. Um, if you're working by yourself, kind of to more um, adequately answer your question, um, I think the same things apply. You know, having communication with yourself sometimes means taking notes and putting shit in your calendar or even just leaving stickies around your computer. Like, hey, don't forget to do this. Hey, today you're sketching that. Um, you know, tweet about this, you know, post this on Instagram, whatever it is. Uh, having that kind of transparency with yourself. Um, I've, I've since, I used to be one of those people that would keep everything in my head. And I've since learned not to do that. Like okay. how much less work it is to just write shit down and forget about it. Not having to like try to remember stuff. Right. So now I have a little notebook where I keep my ongoing stuff on my, um, I have a discord server that I made just basically for me and some of my gaming stuff. Um, but really my discord server is all just for my notes. I have, I have a couple of channels that are just mine where I keep like, what I'm working on currently, my deadlines, um, any links or resources that I need to be looking at, or stuff that I'm backlogging for when I, you know, like articles and interesting things like that that I that I want to look at. Oh, I have a backlog of links that I can revisit. Sometimes I just leave it sitting in my, sitting in my tabs until you know I have dedicated times during the week that I that I catch up on that stuff. Um, so I manage those distractions that way. Yeah, that is the studio. Yep, that's my bunch of heavy metal magazines and a lot of pulpy books over there, some board games. And then over here, it's like a lot of art books, my drawing tables over there, my musical equipment's over there. And then over here, I have a, uh, I call it the puck, but it's a round red puck couch um, for reading because I have a lot of my reading books and, and just kind of like my chill out area is over there. So I kind of have like a nice little cozy, very Twin Peaks inspired space here. I wanted to uh, circle back to what you said about the Kickstarter. You said that it surpassed your expectations. Beyond the uh, intrinsic draw of the, the content, uh, yeah. do you have any extrinsic ideas as far as what may have brought more people to it than you would have expected? Um, I think the streaming certainly helped. The artwork for sure helped because one of the things we did is, is we cranked out quite a few pieces of art for it ahead of time. Um, and also, you know, the community 
I think for any Kickstarter to succeed, um, and these days actually, you know, for us artists, creatives of any kind, um, to make it, it's I think now more than ever having a community, not just an audience, a community that has your back is so important. I think without people, you know, like Spectre Faye and Beth yourselves, um, you know, Rose and all of these people, Eon, all of these people who, you know, are constantly signal boosting us, but also, you know, getting excited about what we do and all of that. Um, word of mouth, you know, word of mouth helps a lot. Uh, one of the things that I, that I, I kind of, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not the only one who's noticed this, but um, when you're selling something yourself, it's very different. There is more resistance and reluctance and pushback. You know, and I'm sure if if, you, if any of you guys who do conve the convention circuit, you know what I mean? Like if, if you're selling your wares, there is a different dynamic than if somebody's in your, like at your booth, geeking out over your work and then somebody else walks up and then they basically pitch your work to the person that just walked up as a fan. I think fans hyping your work to other fans or potential fans is a lot easier than you trying to reach those fans yourself. So that's another reason I think community and 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 having people who have your back that way um, is so important and so so much appreciated. Because uh, otherwise, I probably wouldn't be able to do this anymore. Um, you know, and I'm, I don't know how much that goes for a lot of other people, but for myself, I know that's certainly to be true. Um, one of the things that's happened recently as well is I've not really been active on social media as much anymore as I used to be because it's just gotten way too loud <laughs> and mm. I just don't have the patience for it anymore like I used to. Yeah. Um, but uh, through the networks and, 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 and the communities that I have, like I'm still getting just as much uh, work as I was when I was really active on social media. Um, I think if I did both, that would be even better. Uh, but right now I have the spoons that I have, and most of my spoons are sporks. Yeah. So that's the reality <laughs> of the situation right now. That's fair. Um, we had we so had you know. a few questions for you um, about yeah. social social media that didn't feel like they tied in at any point, and okay, um, it's 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 okay that we 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 don't get to them. I would just say that it it never gets old hearing or being reminded about you know the importance of community in a day and age when social media does have such a pervasive influence on all of our lives that, yeah. that you know, at the bottom of all of it, there really is the necess necessity for people of, of, of like mind and companionship and, you know, a, a family let's, you know, let's, yeah. It, it, yeah, let's call it what it is rather than this sort of like almost kind of played out word of community. It's like, we're, we're really talking about family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, I just, I, I always love, Hearing that, being reminded of that, reiterating it, you know, that like the, the interconnectivity of the of the Internet hasn't broken that and in fact has taught us how much more important that is than ever, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's cool. Speaking of this idea of community, another um, thing that you're part of that I wanted you to talk about a little bit was the Art Forge. Something. That oh, you, yeah. Something that you help run and manage and uh, and you speak a little bit about. Can you tell us what that is? Um, so the the Anvil Art Forge started, oh boy, uh, four years ago, five years ago. No, initially it was it was kind of just like a quiet small group while we refined the nuts and bolts of how we wanted it to work. Um, it's not a huge 
group on Facebook. Um, actually, the Zen, the Zen Workshop Server is an extension of the Anvil Art Forge. But the the whole idea of the forge is is a lot of what I've been talking about is is um, you know, in order to master your your craft and master your work, you also have to work on mastering yourself. Um, and that's really the crux of it. It's it's really about one of our rules is like um, be respectful to everyone, including yourself. You know, because it, it it creates a certain dynamic in a room, in any room. Um, if someone's being, you know, very self-deprecating and like, you know, fishing for compliments and shit like that, it creates a certain vibe, and we don't want that vibe. Um, also, the idea, you know, there's people out there who obsess a lot over what other people are doing with their work, how other people are doing their work. Are people tracing? Are people photo bashing? Are people doing blah 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 blah? And a lot of our idea comes from, you know, focus on your paper, focus on what is yours, focus on your artwork. Because if you're obsessing over what somebody else is doing with their artwork, you're not you're not improving your artwork in any way. Criticizing what other people's doing, gossiping about other people, that's not helping your artwork in any way. That's crab mentality bullshit, as far as I'm concerned. You're you're buying into that trend, you're buying into that mindset, and it's not, you know, while you're sitting there talking about how someone else's work is shit because they photo bash. Your artwork's not getting any better. So maybe just focus on your art, you know, focus on what you're doing, uh, channel that energy on that. Um, but really, it's it's a place just for, yeah, like having a chill space for that kind of mindset uh, where everyone could have constructive criticism, um, learn how to be a constructive criticizer, uh, as well as being someone who takes criticism, you know, effectively, positively, um, with a growth-minded uh, approach to everything. I guess Kaizen is, is one of the terms that's out there in corporate land about this. It's it's just basically constant improvement. And it what was it, what was like it called again? Kaizen? Kaizen? Kaizen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kaizen. Is that an Asian? or Yeah, from Japanese. Oh, okay. Japanese uh, business world. Yeah. Oh, so like Kaizen. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, what is yeah, it it's again? it's about constant improvement. It's about constant improvement. Oh, like that, like the one percent thing that you were talking about. Yeah, earlier. very much that similar mentality. Mm-hmm. With it being People on bash photo bashing, that's boomer as fuck. Says Chewbacca Khan. Sorry. No, it's all good. Um, <laughs> the chat. Uh, the chat. Shout out to the chat, by the way. Um, always wonderful to have everybody in, and it was alluded to um, earlier. But we um, we always appreciate you guys having being here, and even though. You know, we're not able to respond to everything in the same way. It's uh, incredibly valuable input. Um, the stream or the Twitch recordings are high, saved as highlights, so you'll always be able to come back and it's it's kept for posterity. Um, going back to the Anvil Art Forge, you said it was on on Facebook. Is there does it cause you any trouble there? Like you know, like you were saying that you kind of stay a little bit further away from social media these days and you know when you when you have a group that's very important to you and it's on facebook you know one of the like heavier hitters in terms of your the right. demands on your uh, your attention um how does that how does that work and is there a reason why you keep it on facebook as opposed to trying to you know move it to discord or have it be there well that's just it mostly everybody who is active in the facebook group has become active on the discord so okay. that kind of resolved itself okay um everybody's i think well not everybody but many people are in the same boat where 
people are getting sick of social media. And also the fact that, you know, the algorithms and everything else make it basically impossible to keep up with not only your personal connections, but groups like this one as well. Mm -hmm. um, when we started the, uh, what was it? Yeah, when we started the, the group, um, initially we were like 200 people, then we shot up to like 700. But what, I, what we noticed is that there wasn't a lot of activity. Uh, and we weren't interested in having like a big, huge group. We were interested in, in quality over quantity, quality, quality of instruction, um, you know, conversations we're having, you know, the conversations that we were on my students. We wanted more of that sort of thing happening. Um, Wait, hold on one second, Sal. Let me pause you because yeah. you're you were getting a lot of glitches in the matrix. Now it seems to have passed. Yeah, I just sorry, I didn't want you okay. to say anything like super awesome and have it be lost okay uh but yeah you're good now. now yeah you're good now Discord. it looks like it's okay all right cool um yeah so uh qu yeah, qu quality over quantity you know having conversations like the ones we typically have like on my streams the ones we're having today um that's really what we're interested in not a lot of like this the indulgent crap basically um wait this so is an indulgent this is indulging in a more productive manner, I'd like to think. Oh, thank God. Okay. It's not like we're sitting here talking about, you know, talking crap about Blake. Or <laughs> love you, Blake. Um, love you, Blake. <laughs> but uh, yeah, initially we were doing interviews every week. Uh, no, sorry, every month. Um, but uh, this year with everything that's changed, we decided to just focus on our personal lives and just kind of rethinking the whole thing. Um, I'm thinking in this next coming year, depending on what happens, hopefully we don't get hit by an asteroid or I don't know what the fuck's next. Shh, um, stop. Don't even, don't even do it, dude. <laughs> focused. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, hopefully we'll, we'll start doing the interviews again. But when we're doing the interviews, we're doing, doing them kind of like this. You know, we're talking more about the introspective side of things rather than like the how do you do stuff. You know, like, mm -hmm. oh, when did you start? What was your first break? It was right. more. And we did a lot of thematic ones, too. The last one we did was um, last Halloween. We did one with um, uh, fuck, um, the special effects artist from Nightmare on Elm Street and another special effects artist from Outpost 31 Productions mm. talking about uh, concept art and its relation to practical effects and production uh, fabrication. And it was it was a good show. We went we went we went for a long time. Nice. Um, but uh, that's the kind of thing that we would do. We would theme things. Um, one of them was all about creating your own IP. Um, so it's talking to creators who have embarked on, on creating their own properties and launching their own things, either as Kickstarters or, um, you know, uh, uh, self-published uh, self uh, properties or who have had their, their products picked up by companies where they have creative control, that sort of thing. Um, another yeah. one was all just about comic artists and the, and the comic art industry. But again, talking about it from that perspective of like, who are they as people? And um you know uh beyond the artwork you know beyond the surface level of the art you host these on on your discord you said it used to be on twitch yeah uh, okay. yeah you can actually find all of these on my youtube channel still okay good that's what's all gonna the, be my, my next question are there yeah yeah you've got all the recordings there okay cool um and yeah. i'll have to make a note to also put a link to your youtube um well as we're coming close to a close sal um I yeah. want to make sure that we haven't missed anything that you were hoping to 
uh, talk about. So if there's anything that we didn't get to that you want to point out or you wanted to highlight, um, do so now or forever. Sure. Quiet. Um, well, we talked a little, we touched a little bit on the mentorship stuff. Uh, really quick for anybody who's curious, you can learn about that at my Patreon. I'll drop a link to that in the chat as well. Mentorship is program is called the artist doing being mentorship. And it's all about, in fact, I'll post a link that's specifically about that. Um, the artist doing being mentorship, I, I call it doing and being because it's like the doing is all the fundamental stuff. You know, it's anatomy, it's lighting, composition, all of those types of things uh, down to, you know, time management and uh, uh, process, you know, that sort of thing. And being is more the internal stuff. It's the head game stuff. It's how the relationship you have with yourself as your own boss towards your art, how you talk to yourself, how that influences the quality of what you bring to the table when you sit down to work. Um, and furthermore, how that affects you as a professional, which is something that I don't hear talked about very often. So very quickly to like touch on that. Um, <laughs> Blake, really quickly to touch on that. For example, if you don't value your own work and you don't have a very clear, as objective as possible view of your own work, as possible as you could have um, imagine how that impacts the kind of rates that you give your clients imagine the way that impacts the language you use when talking to clients so for example you know the old model of someone who doesn't value their own work and, and kind of like talks themselves out of stuff and talks themselves down and then like does that whole fishing for compliments kind of behavior um, is you know they give a client the rate and they're like yeah so what do you think Mm. You know, oh, it's it's this much, uh, and then they have that whole turmoil, like maybe I'm charging too much and all that stuff, and, and they kind of lowball themselves, first of all, and they're second-guessing themselves, and that comes through in the language that they use with the client. It's like, oh, well, it's 350 what do you think? Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, they and start course, negotiating with themselves immediately. <laughs> immediately, and the clients are going to take that. They're going to latch right. on to it's like, yeah, well, we actually only have, you know, whatever. They're going to, they're going to, they're always going to try to do that. Um, versus you know the artist who knows what their time is worth because here's the thing as artists you're not selling art you're selling your time that's what you're doing is you're selling your time you're not selling a picture you're selling the amount of time that it's going to take you to make that picture yeah. um you're, you're selling the the value of that uh or the value of that person's vision or that company's vision that's what you're that's really what's on the market there um so that's very different from the artist who's like, you know, yeah, what do you think? To someone's like, well, it's going to take me about this long. Based on your deadline, it'll be, you know, at, by this time, uh, it'll be this much. I can send you the invoice. You know, let me know where to send it. You know, it's very clear, very cut, like none of the weird uh, stuff involved. Um, and it doesn't, you know, you can be a professional. You don't have to be an asshole about it. But it saves everyone so much time, including your clients, whose own time is valuable. Um, so that's just like one example of like a practical uh, ripple of what can happen when someone's relationship with their own artwork changes. Basically, the way I look at it is it's all about getting you out of your head so that you can deal with what's in front of you, whether it's a, an empty canvas, a difficult client project, a difficult client, uh, or, you know, personal stuff like personal family issues or like whatever. Like whatever's in front of you is to get you out of your own head so that you're out of your way. 
so you can deal with what's in front of you directly and more objectively, as objectively as possible. That's that's a big part of the tool set and what I and what I bring to that. Um, so yeah, if you guys want to know more about it, feel free to email me, get in touch with me. I'd be very happy to talk shop with it. If you guys want to like have a call with me to learn more about it, uh, reach out to me and we can set that up and I can tell you a little bit more about what it's about, how it all started, uh, how my journey as a weird, introspective four-year-old kid having an existential moment at the age of four led to <laughs> all of this. Yeah, uh, my own journey as well, like how that happened, how how what I learned from myself and and both through trial and error, successes and failures uh, that have shaped this whole thing that I do. Um, I would love to hear from you and uh, help you do what you want to do, not what anybody else wants to do. Oh, that's another thing about the Forge, actually. that's It's weird how the Forge has tangentially, tangentially led to this mentorship that I'm doing now. One of the other things about the, the Anvil Art Forge um, the way that we critique artwork is with the idea of serving what the person wants to do. Whereas I notice a lot of people who give critique give critique based on how they would create the work that they want to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like yeah. stylistically, thematically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and I'm the same way when it comes to this this mentorship program. Um, you know, it's 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 about me helping you do and and walk the walk that you say you want to walk. Not me telling you walk the way that I walk. That's not really helping anybody. Kind of going back to the conversation we had earlier about advice, right? Like there's always going to be variables. Everyone's going to respond to something different. My job in that position is to look for all the threads that the person has missed, help them chase those threads to figure out where the programming is coming from and how can they write their own new programming? Because a lot of the, a lot of what I do in this program is based on the idea that we're all storytellers. And we've all told ourselves stories about who we are, but we forgot that we have that skill. And meanwhile, we're walking around in the world being a Joby, being a Sal, being a Moose, and you know, not having a say in that. This is about having a say in that, about having choice and agency over who you are, over who you be, you know, um, what you present uh, in yourself, and then, of course, by 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 proxy externally around you in the world in your work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whether you're professional or not. And one of the things that's really been fascinating as well is I've worked from people who are, you know, just going to college, like they have their whole life ahead of them. They have to make these big decisions and all that stuff about what they need to do with their art and all that Um, to people who've been in the industry for like 25 years. That one was a shocker. Um, You know, when I was doing the beta test for the program, somebody asked, you know, like somebody asked, like, hey, Sal, what you up to? And like, like, what's this thing about this mentorship thing that you're doing? I was supposed to just be beta testing with just like four people. It ballooned to 12 because mm-hmm. word of mouth got out. And also sometimes I'd be catching up with people and talking kind of like I am with you. And they'd be like, oh, tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. And I'd be like, okay, this is this is this. And they go, yeah, so how do I sign up? And I'd be like, what? Really? You? Because we assume that like when someone is successful, we assume what success looks like. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that was a big lesson as well. It's like holy shit! Like I thought John Doe had all his stuff together and like he was successful and like all this stuff and he had it all figured out because this is someone I was looking up to. And here they're asking me to do this program with me because they're feeling really stuck with imposter syndrome and all the anxiety shit and it's like crippling and it's you know all that shit. And I was like, wow, man, like this is crazy. Like how much it took off um, unexpectedly. So 
that's another reason I think I'm so passionate about it because it speaks true to my own self as well about what I value because I really value you know agency and, and choice and awareness mindfulness um, you know when when someone asks you who you are like I think it's really important that we actually know who we are instead of just who we've been programmed to answer that we are um, going yeah. back to like the whole programming and and one of the things I, I often talk about too is like the shitty mixtapes right we have a bunch of shitty mixtapes in our heads that aren't ours. Some of them we made up and some of them were given to us. And when those shitty mixtapes are playing and you start dancing to them, that's it. You're no longer dealing with reality. You're just listening to that shitty mixtape doing what it's doing. And the whole idea is like, well, you can make new mixtapes. How about we make new mixtapes that will help you do what you want to do with your life, regardless of what it is, you know, just so that you can be more aware and more in tune with what's going on and, and be in the zone, even whatever right. that looks like for each person. Yeah, Terrence McKenna had a great quote. If you're if you don't have your own program, you're going to be part of somebody else's program. So which do you yep. want? I just yeah. have one I just have one more question for you, Sal. Sure. Um it, aside from things that you're working on in your own projects, what's something that's happening in the world that you're just really excited about? You're just stoked that excited it's happening. Excited about. Yeah. Hmm. Take your time about that one. <laughs> yeah. If you can't think of anything, just say tacos and we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Food always is always a good tacos. way to go. Yeah. Food. Oh God. Beth and then Ian and all of the regular crews over on my stream know how much we get into food all the time, all the time. But you know, food is wonderful because it's a, it's a way that cultures have always um, bonded. Yeah. You know, people always bond through food. Food is, food is so important mm -hmm. um, culturally as well. Like, you know, exchanging, um, exchanging our foods our spices our recipes uh diffusion you know that that's such an important thing but honestly let's see i'm gonna say virtual reality oh yeah i'm excited about virtual reality i'm excited about especially you know the way that everything is changing so suddenly this year with with all of this stuff going on i want to say virtual reality is super super exciting um that it's made such a comeback i guess because Mm -hmm. virtual, virtual reality is weird i remember like in the late 90s and early 2000s virtual virtual reality was talked about a lot and and you know you'd go to the arcades and some arcades would have like a setup for it and it was mm -hmm. really rudimentary and really like not realistic compared to what we have now yeah and then it kind of like out. fell to the wayside yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and then you know of course now we have you know oculus and htc and something like all these companies jumping on that stuff and um i think it's exciting it's exciting for not just for like art and games and that sort of thing, but also for human connection, uh -huh. um, for doing activities socially, for sightseeing, for, I mean, hell, even like other applications like going to concerts across the world and things like that. I think there's a lot of untapped potential when it comes to VR and 3D um, peripherals and, and, and the usage of um yeah, VR sculpting, VR art, yeah, all of that stuff is is really exciting. Is but, is sharing those experiences. But definitely not porn because that's disgusting. Oh, absolutely. And you porn. should be ashamed of yourself. Go talk to your priest. Or don't. What? What if your priest insists? Depends on what kind of priest, Joby. Oh, is the priest there too? Any I'm sorry, we're getting What if off they're track. like a tantric? Like there's a whole that's a whole rabbit hole we can jump into <laughs> on another show. Thank God the recording isn't showing Moose's face right now. He gets so mad at me when I do this. Okay, so real quick, I'm going to change the topic. Yeah. Uh, cool. 
uh, Sal mentioned a few times uh, the GDC talks, and you can find a lot of these on their YouTube channel. They post one a day, and they're often really dry presentations, but sometimes they're like really entertaining, but uh, most of the times you'll get some information out of them. Mm -hmm. I would recommend that you just flip through them, watch 10 minutes of it. If it doesn't seem like it's a talk that's going to be interesting to you, then just go to the next one. Um, even if you're not interested in video games, because they can go into production and art and who, all these things. Who is this? Uh, this is GDC. Oh, GDC. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they have their own GDC YouTube channel. Like, um, Yeah, The Vault. But the Vault is their own thing, and then they have a YouTube channel too. So The mm. Vault is for uh, past participants who um, want to watch all the videos and all the get all the slides along with them, whereas the YouTube channel is just, they have a Everything. camera in the back, and then that, they let that play through. Um, if you're looking for something a little more entertaining from the video game side, uh, there's Game Maker's Toolkit, which has a lot fewer videos, but they're like much more uh, well edited and entertaining. To, to, they're great. Oh, <laughs> that'll teach you. Oh, how, there you go. How, how dare you start talking about anything but. Yeah, so I don't know what the last thing I said was. But uh, the other thing uh, after Game Maker's Toolkit is uh, Extra Credits. They have a lot of uh, history videos and sci-fi videos in there as well. But it started out as a uh, video game uh, entertainment, uh, video game developer. How do, you, how do you make video games type thing? So, mm. yeah. Those are the places I would go to learn how to make games. Whether it's board games or... Uh, even D and D supplements and stuff like that. Oh yeah, and not not only that, but uh, there's a lot of really great talks like postmortems um, that are you can learn a lot from, where people get into more of the personal stories uh, behind the games that they made. Uh, what's the game? All Boy. Is that it? All Boy. Their talk was amazing. I uh, highly recommend checking out their talk. Um, it took them ten years to make their pixel art game, and they talk a lot about like the failures and 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 the small successes along the way, um, what they would do differently, but also how it affected them personally, um, uh, how the success of the game affected them personally, and and all of that stuff. And that's that can be really fascinating, can be really really good learning opportunities for for people. Um, who are interested in any of that stuff, but you know, not just as game developers, but like entrepreneurs or professionals of any kind, really. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good stuff. I'm a big fan of, of learning from other people's failures and successes as well. One uh, I want to point out to anybody that plans on like uh, working with a team is there's a video on GDC about... Um, it's an EA team and they were more productive than any other team at the studio. And it was, uh, Oh, I'm trying to remember the exact words now, but it was uh, a distribution of, um, <sighs> crap. I'm gonna have to think about it and put it in the notes, but it was, uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. That's it. Mm. It was talking about, uh, how you get to motivate people to work for you. And it's based. the short version is you get them to be involved and have, uh, ownership of the decisions that they make and you think that you hire people that are good at what they do and you let them do it mm. we're coming up on two hours so i have to jump in here i want to make a quick note about next week we're going to be talking to heather hitchman we alluded uh, oh, a little sweet. bit uh, to patreons in in this episode and next week we're going to be talking to heather i think pretty much entirely about her patreon because it's 
a case study in success. Uh, and she has a lot of great things to say about it. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, please, please make sure you show up for that. And to put a final note on it, Sal, the Dark Cloak, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate hey, it. So as, as, as usual, it's a damn break of fascinating information from you every time. And I can't wait to the next time that you're going to be on. I really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, tomorrow, actually. I'll be on tomorrow. Um, we are doing a blind D&D sketch jam. Oh, where right. I have a guy called Shani, who's my DM for our games. He comes on and he just gives us descriptions. No names. Doesn't tell us what we're actually drawing. He gives us blind descriptions of random monsters from the, from the D&D compendium. And we sketch them based on his descriptions and see how close we get to what it actually is. It's pretty hilarious. It's a good time. We're usually timed for like 20 minutes uh, for each sketch. And it's, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Fantastic. Right on, dude. I'm going to hit the end on the record button, man, and we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot, dude.